you want to get the latest news about our podcast, including upcoming episodes, exclusive content, and live events, visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Now there's a question of whether these network movements can get over that energy of activation from you know the chemistry world to catalyze something bigger, whether they can do more than say no to Congress, but to be for something as well. And of course, we've got lots of things we'd like them to be for in Congress because this administration has shown us um, where the holes and weak spots are in our system of democratic accountability. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media. Alex Howard is the deputy director of the Sunlight Foundation, a national nonpartisan nonprofit organization whose aim is to make our government and politics more accountable and transparent. Welcome back to the podcast, Alex. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's, you know, I see you every once in a while uh, when I'm out and about at uh, journalism things, and, and you're always talking about open government, transparency, and kind of the fix we're in right now. We are kind of in a fix, wouldn't you say? Well, yes and no. Okay. Uh, I think that we've seen how strong our institutions are or are not. We've seen uh, what parts of the system are or not working, and this we're talking about all levels of government, right? This isn't just about what's happening in the United States government, what's happening at the state and local level, or what's happening internationally. Everybody, after, I think, a fairly big shock to the system and an unexpected result in the election, has been questioning, what does it mean for various things? What does it mean for democracy? What does it mean for the idea that the consent of the governed is important or that the role of Congress to be representative of the people is thrown into stark relief by, let's say, an erosion of some of the democratic norms and conventions and traditions that we depend on. And I think it's fair to say that there are parts of our society which are being quite responsive and effective. You mentioned journalism. Despite the massive loss in uh, jobs, something on the order of 40,000 jobs now flowing out of um, state and local uh, coverage. At the national level, it's hard not to look at the extraordinary work that the Washington Post, the New York Times just won a Pulitzer for, but all the other outlets, including some digital first outlets that simply didn't exist in a you know, decade ago, are doing terrific work. Clearly, the judicial branch, um, the judiciary, has done a good job, I think, correcting unconstitutional actions or behaviors, orders by the executive. But Congress has failed, I think, in many senses yeah. to do its oversight job. And now, I think we're going to see whether the ultimate kind of corrective is going to be part of a conversation, which is to say whether the American people will vote to put different people in who will perform the jobs that they are supposed to be doing. The uh, broader context of open government, as we've talked about here, is pretty big, though, right? It yeah. con contains so many open things, and there's been so much progress and so much evolution there, some of it which is truly revolutionary, that it would be, I think, remiss of me not to recognize the incredibly different context that we're in. You know, I was talking with a friend about the phenomenon of seeing you know, a woman violently arrested by police in a Waffle House, and that was captured by someone on their smartphone and then posted online. This comes a couple days after a Starbucks uh, had a different dynamic. We've seen example after example after example of different places where people are interacting 
with representatives of the state or trying to attend public meetings, trying to see how their government is conducting itself in public. And I think that it would be wrong to say that that hasn't had a corrective on, on our understanding of the, our experiences of our fellow Americans and people all around the world. Maybe sometimes to our detriment because our sense of everything is awful. And now we're trying to see whether the other part of this comes through, which is accountability, right? Whether there is an action taken after what we can, I think, often see are the, well, uh, loss of, of civil liberties or rights that we might take for granted in parts of the country in the path of fellow citizens. That's where transparency leads you. The question now is accountability and whether we see reform in action. And it needs to happen for the, the big, I think, goal of many people in this space to work out, which is to restore trust in government, restore trust in institutions, which is at historic lows. And a that requires a different kind of transparency, right? That requires institutions and individuals, politicians, civil servants at every level of government being transparent about things that they may not want to be. Sometimes that's at the point of court order, unfortunately, it was, uh, you know, where people use sunshine laws, freedom of information uh, laws to sue. Sometimes it's because of policies. But whatever it is, to be transparent about things that maybe show that they or their institution, whatever that they're in charge of, aren't doing things as well as they should, fraud, waste, abuse of power, the worst, criminal activity, and then directly explaining to the public and talking to the press about what happened, what they know about it, what they don't know, and what they're going to do, and building a relationship with the public about their shared understanding. And that's one of the biggest challenges I think we face right now is having shared understanding of what's happening and not allowing different parts of society to blind us. Something that comes up around, uh, say, the debate around gun violence, which the CDC still can't really study. It's disheartening. You know, we've talked about a lot of issues that, that go around this, you know, things like fake news about transparency and, and accountability. You talk about, you know, the big accountability act that we're, we're, we're hoping takes place in November when the, the electorate comes out and, and we get to see, hopefully, what what they believe in, that their, their, their thoughts and about where our country should be headed are going to be reflected in the way they vote. But then we see threats to that very process. Mm-hmm. You know, just people talking about, well, how can we trust the polls? Uh, is there is there some conspiracy going on behind the scenes of, of outside forces like impacting our electoral process? Yep. At the same time, we, we, we have a history, you know, recent history of, that we can point to of, you know, sort of systematic gerrymandering of uh, like excluding certain communities from being represented the way they should be represented yep. in, in local and state mm-hmm. races. And it's, it's just problematic because... When those draw those lines are drawn a particular way, certain factions are able to control the laws that come out of uh, the, mm-hmm. the local state house, and many of those affect things about who's going to vote in the in the larger elections. Yep. Uh, well, a couple things on that. First, as you know, as a our nonprofit status, we can't participate in electioneering or evaluate people on our issues. Um, we can always hold people who are elected or civil servants to account, but we can't evaluate them as as campaigners on issues of open government. Where I'm maybe principally concerned from the last election is the low levels of voter participation. And regardless of what party people do or do not register for, the primary thing I want to see this year is participation, whether they 
vote for one party or another or a third party or no party. You just want to see people participate because there's a lot of focus on who didn't vote or who they voted for in the last cycle at the presidential level. What I think we need to figure out as Americans is why more than 40% of our fellow citizens who are eligible didn't vote and to get them involved because it will change the country if we have active citizens. Yeah. Second thing, you, know, you mentioned this issue of, of fake news. Unfortunately, it's become incredibly charged because the president uses it as a term to delegitimize journalism that holds yeah. into account in ways he doesn't like. Not in the sense that my friend Craig Silverman over at BuzzFeed did many years ago with the Macedonian teenagers who were creating intentionally falsified posts on Facebook that they know to be untrue to make money. And the, the greatest challenge now is that the distrust in media that has been sown for decades has now been weaponized to inoculate a large portion of the republic against journalism that is usually crucial to forming an opinion of understanding what's happening. And if, unless we figure out a way to address that, and I think it has to come, unfortunately, from within one of our nation's great parties, we're going to have a, a, an epistemic problem, right, where we're going to have the press say something is happening and the government say, no, it isn't, and we'll have a difference of opinion in terms of public evidence and what should be done about it. And you can already see the impact of that around various public policy issues we don't need to, to dive into. You know, my, my sense is that what you spoke to around gerrymandering and the vote is one of the most important issues in American society. Fortunately, the Supreme Court is, is hearing a case in it. I've been heartened to see judges have tossed blatantly unconstitutional redistricting plans out. My sense is one of the ways out of this is probably going to be for independent judges. I don't think judges should be standing for election because of the undue influence around that. Using software, evaluate fair districts based on that. And if we don't see that, we're going to continue to see the phenomenon of politicians choosing their voters as opposed to voters choosing their politicians. And I think that's fundamentally wrong in a democracy. I think that that combined with voter suppression is not healthy in any sense of the term. It, it is clearly going back in history and it is protecting the parts of our society um, that continue to want to deny the vote to people on the base of their uh, race which is something that uh, is one of, obviously, the worst uh, marks in American history and is still with us. And all you have to do is talk to people who remember poll taxes and remember voting tests, who lived through the civil rights movement, to know that this is still very present in their lives. And the Supreme Court's decision in the Voting Rights Act, I think, was fundamentally wrong. Of course, I have disagreements with the court on a number of issues, uh, despite uh, not being a law professor myself. And... Uh, has had, I think, a negative consequence, both in the last election cycle and potentially in the next one. Race, race is the original sin of our country, and I think it's something that, that I don't think we're ever going to get rid of. And all we can do is to work as hard and as diligently as we can to mm -hmm. make us better people, a better country mm. around it. Yep. Um, we do take steps forward, but we also take you know steps back, and, and I feel we're kind of in a, in a place where there are many steps that are that are that we're falling backward on this. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's the nature of history, right? That's the nature of history. The we progress here bends back and it, forth. Exactly, yeah. um, and it's it's disheartening, and we you, you, we can we can talk a little bit more about uh, this whole fake news mm -hmm. idea. 
you know, it's it's amazing how the whole discussion around that has sort of evolved. Originally, it was this kind of idea that that it was oh, it just you know that oh maybe there were these these false posts that were happening on Facebook no, and then no, now we about it. Yeah. And yeah and now we know that that's the case and then you know that we have a have a president as you said who is is sort of devaluing the press using you know this is not nothing new elected officials have been have, have been denigrating the press for for ages but yeah. but the fact is is we're in a kind of a dangerous time because uh, the technology has gotten to the point where people are able to uh, use information and disinformation as as weapons in trying to sway mass opinion. That's been with us in the United States from the very beginning, that back in the 18th century, we had pamphleteers. Right. And they are partisan, and they were friends of the politicians, friends of the wealthy, you know, that... That was very much a feature of that. And people would put out pamphlets that had very low degrees of accuracy um, that were clearly designed to have effects upon people's electoral decisions or influence the electorate otherwise. Yeah, the, Ad the right. Adams-Jefferson election. And I think I'd was... argue that the you know, 19th century and 20th century, we saw lots of misinformation, lots of propaganda. Every single technological revolution that has come along has been used by nation states to try to misinform or create propaganda that benefits their interests, right. in, including the United States, of course, through our clandestine services or more overtly think, uh, through our various efforts. You know, if we uh, were fighting World War II right now, we would absolutely see Tokyo Rose on social media. Um, there'd be calls to ban, you know, the Nazis from any and all American social networks to otherwise engage in information warfare. And we'd see a lot of the same behaviors where people uh, pose as legitimate domestic actors or, or by channels, by spectrum, who create media properties with an intent to misinform and divide Americans. And I think the difference now is uh, scale, uh, distribution, and direct access, right? right. The, the fact that we all have, uh, those of us who can afford it, and the smartphones, right? There's still a lot of the world who can't. We have uh, ubiquitous uh, mobile broadband access off through Wi-Fi or LTE, again, based upon whether people can afford it. And you've got the phenomenon of social media, which is you know instant real-time planetary distribution plus streaming or uh, hosted video. And, and those together continue to be intensely disruptive to societies which have been limited in terms of their access to information about the outside world and critically to each other. A lot of autocratic, authoritarian regimes are choosing different strategies to address these things, from Russia to China to Iran to various African countries. You know, th these are all places that are, are grappling with what used to be control through state media. You have one paper, you have one radio station, you've got TV. The, those can be censored, chilled, etc. Now you have the phenomenon of people being able to document what's happening. And often their point of intervention is if and when that leads to protest or political power. And then and that's where you see the efforts of the police states to roll up those networks. And indeed, you know, in the United States, often you see the points of intervention coming through protests or other movements. That's when local, state, even federal law enforcement gets involved to monitor, surveil, intercept, um, see what's happening. My sense is, though, that that part of the information revolution is something you, you know we're obviously living through in a very intense way. It's creating the sense of ambient intimacy with people the other side of the world who are going through 
uh, experiences, and it builds a sense of uh, networked commonality that can be intense to live through and is finally, I think, starting to be uh, channeled into more political outcomes. There's a lot of criticism of slacktivism and clicktivism last decade because people weren't turning out to vote. They weren't turning up to stand up for uh, office themselves. They weren't channeling the protest into political power. And now there's a question of whether these network movements can get over that energy of activation from you know the chemistry world to catalyze something bigger, whether they can do more than say no to Congress, but to be for something as well. And of course, we've got lots of things we'd like them to be for in Congress because this administration has shown us um, where the holes and weak spots are in our system of democratic accountability. You alluded to it before. Congress is not doing us any favors. They appear to be not doing the job that, they, that they're supposed to be here for. Congress traditionally has been a, a sort of a leveling place. On the one hand, you want them to take action, but then on the other hand, they're also a place where ideas are kind of pulled back and forth. But mm-hmm. the fact uh, there's a lot of frustration on both sides with the inability, well, even just to pass a budget. You know, their very basic yep. job that they're supposed to do. Yep. Unable to to come together in, in, well, in a meaningful instead way. Instead, we get omnibus bills that get right. pushed through, um, which I have to say, you know, we were heartened in the sense there were a whole lot of our institutions that were fully funded in ways that uh, people who looked at that skinny budget proposed last year were concerned about. We're still, unfortunately, not seeing the census taken care of like you wish. Right. We want to see Congress hold hearings about this uh, citizenship question, which is not a good idea. Yeah, and why is uh, the census important? Well, the census is constitutionally mandated enumeration of who lives in the United States, not just the citizens, but everybody. And it's used to apportion appropriations. Uh, it's fundamentally, of course, an act of profound self-knowledge. It is our nation's opportunity to understand ourselves, who we are, uh, what we do, where we live. It's used by businesses, it's used by media, it's used by academics and researchers, it's used by government itself. Um, it's used to decide who, uh, how and where congressional districts are right. drawn. It is one of the most important canonical open government data sets um, right. in our nation's history and always will be. And when we've seen other nation states make poor decisions regarding their census, uh, it has had negative effects upon that country's ability to know itself and to govern more effectively um, than unfortunately happened up in Canada when they made their um, long-form census voluntary. Thankfully, that the Trudeau administration restored that as one of their first actions. You know, certainly, you know, our expectation is that the citizenship question is added it's going to significantly chill participation from people who rightfully are concerned about immigration officers showing up to their household. And we've seen, unfortunately, the census abused in the nation's history. There have been strong laws passed to try to prevent that abuse now. But it's safe to say that for lots of good reasons, uh, minority and marginalized populations do not trust the federal government as much now as they did a couple years ago. And even then, there are lots of reasons for them to be concerned. And that's a incredibly negative outcome. You know, we as a society agree that there are responsibilities that the country has to its people writ large, and that uh, we should be judged by how we treat those who have least amongst us, and that frequently people who are poor are at the forefront of 
abuse of power, everything from um, surveillance to very intrusive privacy, uh, negating requirements for receiving services, and are unfortunately subject to discrimination on the basis of protected classes, which is why we have laws about these issues. And the potential for the census to be done wrong is now significantly higher. Census itself is scored at high risk. The way this was done makes it clear that Secretary Wilbur Ross overruled internal recommendations. He, he went against the last four census directors who pushed for this. It's simply bad public policy. And in a different Congress, I would think there would be more comedy in addressing it in this one. Polarization in election year appears to be preventing that, along with a lot of other issues. This Congress has acted in a number of areas, including ways that I think uh, should have been broken out and separately debated, pending, say, the Cloud Act, that last appropriations bill is a good example of that. There are some victories here and there, but it's very hard for me to hold up making Congressional Research Service reports open and available to the public after years and years of advocacy, including by us, to everyone as a shining example when there are so many issues where there isn't oversight being uh, levied. Okay, you, you've you've documented a lot of documented. You've you've counted out a lot of things that are problems. What is the thing that that troubles you the most about the sort of the current state of uh, accountability in the government? Ooh, the thing that troubles me the most. Uh, <laughs> just one. Just pick one. You know, I have to say, uh, it's the lack of Congress acting as a separate but co-equal ban- branch of government to be a check and balance on the presidency. There's a long laundry list of concerns I have about our government. I'd like to see serious reforms to how and where we deal with the Foreign Agent Registrations Act and its execution of foreign influence. I think money and politics, because of Sunlight's long positions there and my own concerns about influence, what my friend Daniel Bryan at POGO calls, Project and Government Oversight, calls legalized corruption through the campaign finance system and lobbying. Clearly, it's a foundational issue redistricting and gerrymandering is a foundational issue. But I have had the experience now for uh, going on two years of waking up every day and seeing what's new. And you know, since Inauguration Day, my job, I mean, really since Election Day, my job changed. And what I've been looking for are uh, more signs that Congress is going to do its job as opposed to, frankly, if in the military sense, we'd say you know, dereliction of duty, which is a very serious thing to say, but they are not upholding their responsibility. You cannot tell me that a president who has repudiated decades of norms around disclosing his taxes or refused to divest from his businesses and uh, has flouted ethics laws and allowed them to be flouted in office is behaving in a way that Congress shouldn't be evaluating and checking more effectively. You know, the reality of president's party controlling both houses of Congress, I think, notwithstanding, it would behoove Congress to act like they are equal, not that they are partners, right? And in this case, I think it has come at the cost of public trust in government and in the presidency. You know, I've gone back and read, oddly enough, the Federalist Papers this last year. I went back and uh, read you know, what people were thinking about in the context of drafting various parts of the Constitution. It's very clear that the president is not to receive emoluments without the consent of Congress. Congress is not consented, and the president continues to receive foreign and domestic payments through his businesses. He's allowed his children to serve in the White House. 
you know, these are decisions that should be checked. Beyond that, there is the obviously much broader context of whatever conflict of interest exists with the president and a foreign power. Now, obviously, we're, we're at a place where we have an independent investigator who is evaluating that, who has the power of the Justice Department behind him. But Congress has, I think, failed to act appropriately to protect uh, that power when the president fired the man who was heading up the investigation into his, his campaign. Congress didn't do very much about that. And the effect upon, I think, public trust is self-evident of that inaction. And uh, the consequences for our sense of, I think, as a, as a society and the rule of law are eroded too. Um, there's a cascading effect when these yeah. things aren't checked that go down to the state and local level or elsewhere. You know, you, we brought we brought up the issue of the president calling things fake news. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, autocratic leaders in other countries have taken up that call and uh, have been emboldened to say and do things which directly not just chill but repress uh, the press in those countries. I think we're, we're incredibly fortunate in the sense that this president has said a lot of things that are unprecedented, I think, as a publicly, as a United States president. But to date, we haven't seen the kind of, frankly, direct murder, right, that exists in other countries, whether it's Mexico or Russia or other places where journalists get killed yeah. for reporting. I haven't seen that in the United States No, we've yet. just seen the T-shirts that are calling for it. Yeah, and... You know, it's appropriate for, again, Congress to be holding the president accountable, right? The fact is that there was a candidate who assaulted a reporter, Guardian reporter Ben Jacobs, and still was seated in Congress and wasn't censured and, in fact, was supported. That still stands out to me as a signal moment in the last two years when something that should never be acceptable was accepted and there is no real consequence for this person, Representative John Forte, I think we pronounce his name, yeah. John For uh, in his new job as a representative. That's extraordinary to me. And that's different. Because, because I, if you don't address that, then it becomes, that becomes accepted behavior. You push, you push, you've, op you've opened the Overton window, right? Right. You've shifted that. And those are actually the precise moments when it's critical that statesmen step up and say, no. And state, and increasingly, I think we can say states women too, right? Yeah. There is going to be a very interesting inflection point this year. There's a historic number of women standing for Congress. Maybe we'll start to inch a little bit more towards parity, you know, but it, obviously there's still a long way to go there. Yeah, it's only taken about 100 years for oh. that to happen. Oh. I too, um, the moments when things, the, you know, Ben Jacobs being attacked and mm. other instances where, there were certain norms, and suddenly that that norm was being ignored. That yeah. you know, oh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna release my tax tax returns mm -hmm. because it's like, okay, well maybe there isn't a law, but that's just been sort of the tradition and the accepted and and it's a, a great positive move to do in a transparency aspect that you under, understand what the, a candidate can gain or lose, and so by just ignoring the norms then suddenly it sort of puts everybody off, well, what is what is acceptable now? Yeah, well, we, we've seen that cascade down where you've seen candidates for Congress or governor say, well, I won't do that too. The key is to recognize why 
something is done, right? We encourage, even expect, public servants to disclose their finances, indeed disclose their taxes, so that the public can have an understanding of how they've earned their money, how they've managed their money, where they may have potential conflicts of interest, and then have an understanding of what steps they've taken to do something about it. The ethics and government uh, law that was passed in the wake of Watergate, in fact, requires this of people who want to serve at the highest levels of American government. You've got to put a financial disclosure form. You have to uh, put out an agreement, an ethics agreement. You know, the president and VP are exempt from this federal ethics law. We saw this coming during the election and talked about it. Hey, heads up, the president's exempt from this. There's a hole here. And we took the, I think, uncommon and still somewhat controversial step of saying Congress should mandate disclosure. If a you know major party nominee, someone wants to get the nomination, doesn't disclose, you know, Congress should say that that should be disclosed for that particular person at that particular role. It is an incredibly intrusive, powerful thing for the state to forcibly disclose someone's tax return. And it's only something that we thought was appropriate for the presidential nominee of a given party, because to do it for other levels of government, I think, would be problematic. And we've seen pushback, right? There have been various states who have looked at adding this to their process. California said no because of their concerns about this. Uh, Maryland moved towards it. You know, we expect to see lots of heterogeneity in the states. That's how it works. It's a great thing. Lots of laboratories of democracy, lots of experiments, see which ones bear out and which don't. I think that is a fine way to approach things. The key here, though, is that public servants should be accountable to the public. There should not be a question about whether someone is putting special interests or their private interests ahead of the public's interests. And if there is that question, they should take all reasonable steps to remove that appearance, much less the reality of it. And as a result of not having that be done, we're seeing something that's unprecedented in American history. You've got a president who's got global businesses, all of which are points of leverage from foreign governments. And you've got domestic businesses all around the United States, which are also being used as points of leverage or influence. Mm -hmm. You're seeing a move away from, we're talking about the Trump Organization here, and this is something that David Farenthold has been phenomenal and documented the Washington Post, from the nonprofits and charities who are hosting events and into that gap, the new business are foreign entities. Here the uh, Embassy of the Philippines is going to throw a party at the Trump Hotel. They've got business before the country. Obviously, there's issues. And you've got the Republican National Committee, the, you know, the Republican Party itself spending money at these businesses. I think uh, $225,000 just got reported at Mar-a-Lago last month. We talk a lot about the phenomenon of Americans being turned off from government because they feel like pay-to-play politics means that the wealthiest amongst us have more influence, that their uh, special interests are able to lobby for what they want. They're able to use the campaign finance system to get favorable conditions for their businesses or for their issues. Anybody who looks at that um, tax bill last year that got the estate tax repealed probably feels like the billionaires got a pretty good return on their investment, right? But what we're seeing now is something a little bit different. It's play to play on the golf courses. It's stay to play at the hotels. It's party to play at the hotels. They're putting money into the president's businesses. He's continuing to benefit. 
Remember, he's, a, he's got a revocable trust, not one where he's divested completely. And people understand that um, the so-called wall between the president and his businesses is pretty opaque and pretty pregnable, right? There's, n- there's no way to ascertain how much he's talking with his children or not about this or how much he himself is following how it's going. And there's every reason to think, given his behavior at Mar-a-Lago, where he's talking to guests, he's talking to members about matters of public policy, that if you can get yourself into that place where you get a moment with the president, that those levers of influence are being used. That is different. It is, it is not precedented. We've seen lots of presidents in modern history um, take measures to ensure the public has a sense that our interests are being put first. They do that by transparent, being transparent. They do that by being accountable, by holding press conferences about these issues. Um, and they do that by talking about the importance of ethics laws and good governance. Um, you know, I'm talking to other governments at state levels, other national governments, talking to our agencies who are in charge of anti-corruption programs, of democracy, good governance, um, something that is frankly a national security issue. Right? Anybody who's seen post-conflict operations from the uh, Department of Defense, the um, US uh, AID, State Department, um, knows that we've tried to encourage nations to move towards more effective, open, transparent, Good governance. You don't have your children serve in government. You divest from your businesses. You don't have state businesses that are mingled with political parties. Mm-hmm. Um, you are transparent about your own finances. You engage in good faith um, in things like the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, a bill that this president has called a horrible law. You know, these are all things that are very much in the interest of democracies and, frankly, um, a lot of the the businesses that the president putatively wants to support. Transparency enables investors um, to adjudicate risk. Um, One of the current reasons to be thoughtful about this is that many cities and states are facing down some real liabilities in their finances. The bond market, their pensions, um, these are all things that pose challenges. Transparency allows everybody 360 degrees elected officials, the civil servants, the public, the press, regulators, businesses, to understand where the real risks and liabilities lie. This is true for nation states, too. And there's been immense progress in convening global conversations about these issues. I cannot understate how damaging this presidency has been to those efforts and to United States foreign policy and international interests. And I'm hoping that more members of the business community and international investment community will highlight those issues to members of Congress so that they come around to the fact that if they don't act, it's going to have global negative effects upon any number of things which historically have been shared American values around democracy, human rights, ownership of property and capital, and our own sense of leadership in the world, which has clearly been seeded. Yeah. Alex, we could go on for another an hour about this. Uh, you've given us a lot to thought, think about. Let me, before we wrap up, though, let me ask you this. Yep. You work for the Sunlight Foundation. You advocate for, for transparency. Mm-hmm. What are your marching orders? What, what, what should people be doing? 
Well, uh, I we just went through Sunshine Week last month, uh, and we talked about Madison. Is you know it's around Madison's birthday, President Madison's birthday, who's often thought about as the founder of. I think forefather of open government in the United States. The idea that the public has a right to know, that the public needs to be armed with information. And I think the challenge for all of us increasingly is that we have more agency over what we read and what we share than ever before. And we have this, I think, obligation to, uh, I think, model public discourse, to model good information hygiene, to model being skeptics. I think more than ever, we have an obligation to be active citizens. It's one of the most important things that I think we can do right now is to try to pull more people into the process, try to talk to people who may have different feelings about different aspects of social or economic or foreign policy, but have shared values around community, to reconnect around local government, to participate in that, and to become more active in the next steps of what happens in our country. I don't think any of this is going to work if it's just lonely advocates and watchdogs and, and academics and everyone else who's mobilizing in civil society to try to enact reforms that are responsive to the great challenges we have right now, whether it's partisanship or polarization or media fragmentation or the uh, various things we've talked about. It's critical that we're all taking steps to to learn from each other, to be respectful for each other, to try to embrace empathy and grace, despite our considerable anger, and also to be uh, righteous in our indignation and condemnation of certain kinds of thinking. It is not without precedent to have Nazis rallying in the open in the United States with a swastika. That just happened this past week. A lot of Americans seem to have forgotten that the Holocaust occurred to have been taken in by people who denied or did not teach it. We cannot repeat that chapter of history. My friends and family escaped from that. It is too painful to look back for many people what happened in the internment camps in Manzanar, uh, what we did to Japanese Americans in World War II. But it is also easy to see the shadows of some of that reaching into today. We cannot forget our lessons of history cannot sit back on the sidelines. We cannot forget to talk about the importance of the press. And we cannot fail to hold our representatives to account for ensuring that the consent of the governed isn't just a motto, right? It's something that still should be required when we have really big public policy debates. And that means not putting up huge bills and rushing them through and ignoring public feedback. It means holding open debates. It means holding town halls. It means, yes, going direct to the public using social media and smartphones and the live streaming of this time, but also making sure that you're accountable to people by going in person to them and holding press conferences. It's a both and, not either or. It means that we need to find some better way of financing our elections and guiding how and where speech that is being weaponized and chilled is, I think, I don't want to say regulated, but governed in a more effective way on these new huge private platforms that are hosting it. There's a lot of systemic problems. We've covered a mm -hmm. lot of ground here. But if people are interested in learning more about our specific ideas for policies 
or laws, or bills, rules, or regulations, you know, I'd love them to come to sunlightfoundation.com and connect to us, right? Because we could sit and just talk about our agenda. But the number one thing I'd say is participate, show up, vote, show Congress that you care, show your state legislatures that you care, that you know who they are, and you're watching and reading and seeing how they vote, and that you understand what they're doing, and that you want them to be better representatives to improve upon the systemic problems. That's the number one thing. Go yeah. to vote.org. Get registered. Great advice. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. It's great to join you again. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. Would you like to find out more about our podcast, including information about upcoming episodes? Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to sign up for our weekly newsletter. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. This week's podcast was produced by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Nicholas Hunter provided our research and web assistance. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Target USA podcast with your host, J.J. Green. Russia could render a huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. That could touch the whole of the United States. ISIS. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to see an attack. This is J.J. Green. Join me each week for the latest on U.S. and international security on Target USA. The Target USA podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.